Several years ago, there was a fitness center that was trying to promote itself and trying to uh, get more members to come there and, of course, pay a membership fee and work out and become stronger and whatnot. And they were trying to develop a promotion that would draw more people in. And they had a man that worked at this fitness center that was an extremely uh, gifted man as far as his muscles and as far as his strength. And they came up with a promotion that they would not only give a free membership to anybody that could do this, but also give them an additional $1,000 if they could do what this man could do. And what this man would do is he would stand in front of the fitness center and he would uh, have um, in front of him a table and on that table uh, he would have some lemons. And he would uh, cut one of those lemons in half and then the crowd would gather because it was a promotional day and he would take that lemon and he would squeeze that lemon and squeeze all of the juice out of that particular lemon. And the challenge was to get a free membership and also that $1,000. He would invite everyone from the crowd, anyone who wanted to, to come up and pick up that lemon that he had just squeezed and squeeze it again. And if they could get one drop, just one more drop to come out of that lemon, they would get a free membership and also get $1,000. And this went on for some time. This man was so strong and his grip was so great that he could take that lemon and he would squeeze it until he drained it completely dry. There was no juice left in that lemon. So no matter how strong a person was that came up there, whether he was a bodybuilder, whether he was a lumberjack, whether he was a soldier, regardless of whatever his walk in life is, they would come up and they would squeeze that lemon and they would grimace and they would squeeze it so hard and they never, ever could get one drop more to come out of that lemon. But one day, this real nerdy-looking fella came up, grabbed the lemon, squeezed it, and not only did one drop come out, but five drops came out. The guy that worked at the fitness center was amazed. He says, how in the world did you do that? How in the world did you win this prize? Are you like a lumberjack? Are you like Superman disguised under that clothes? Under your clothes, what kind of work do you do? The man says, I work for the IRS. I don't know how many of you have already done your taxes for this year. I always put mine off at the last minute because I never get anything back. I always have to pay, and it's always quite a bit, so I put it off to the bitter end. Uh, But we have to pay our taxes. Uh, The Bible tells us we have to pay our taxes. Uh, The government tells us that we have to pay our taxes. In fact, if we get caught not paying our taxes and cheating the IRS, uh, we could get into all kinds of trouble. Uh, The IRS, of all the government agencies, has more power uh, than any other. Uh, They are able to do things even without due process of law that no other agency can do. Um, But still, there are some people, believe it or not, who cheat on their income taxes. Uh, They think they can get away with it. I read a story not too long ago about a man that was um, feeling kind of bad because he had cheated the IRS, so he wrote them a letter, and in that letter he enclosed a check for $150, and the letter simply said this, I cheated on my taxes a couple years ago, and because of that, 
I am enclosing $150. I have not been able to sleep. So I am sending this money to you in the hopes that I'll be able to sleep soundly at night now. If I do not sleep soundly at night now, I will send you the rest. This morning, we want to talk about a man who, not, who did not cheat on his own taxes, but a man who cheated on everybody else's taxes. Today, we're going to be talking about Zach, the IRS agent. And we find his story, if you will, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. And there you're going to discover the story of a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And we'll just shorten his name for Zach to, to Zach. And uh, in the text, he's referred to as a publican. And a publican was a tax collector during the times of Jesus Christ. Notice he was not a republican. Sometimes people get confused with that. But he was a publican. He was in charge of taking care of taxes. And we're going to discover some things about this particular man in the text. The outline is very simple. I've divided the, the text that we're going to be looking at into three different little sections. But we do hope that you have your Bibles with you and you'll open up your Bibles and, and place your marker there as I have done because we're going to be using the text as an outline of our lesson today. The very first thing I want you to see in the very first uh, four verses is simply this. Here we see the searching sinner. The text reads, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. Now, as we look at this particular uh, center, I want you to notice some things about him. First of all, look at his name, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus in the Hebrew language meant one who was pure and righteous, which is kind of an unusual thing for this man to be called because this man was far from being pure and righteous. The text tells us that this man was a publican. In other words, he was the internal revenue service for the government of Rome. Being a tax collector for the government of Rome, he was someone who was considered a traitor to his country. Anybody who was a Jew that would work for the Roman government was considered a traitor. But this man was even more so considered a traitor because he was involved in a government job that went and took money from his fellow countrymen and gave it to the oppressing, the conquering army that was in this nation. So as far as the people that were living during the time of Jesus Christ, if you were a tax collector for the Roman government, you were considered a nation, uh, considered a traitor to your nation, a traitor to your race as a Jew. He was someone who was despised and no one liked him. But notice also in the text, it says that he was chief among the publicans. In other words, this man was not just a regular tax collector. He was the one that was in charge of all the tax collectors in this region. He was the man that all the other tax collectors reported to. Now, for us to fully appreciate this, let us understand how this particular system worked. 
If you got a job working for the Roman government as a tax collector, your responsibility was to go and collect taxes from the Jewish people for the Roman government. The Roman government would say, this is your assignment. Go collect 3% taxes, and it's just a figure I'm throwing them out there. 3% from each one of the people's income. That's your job. What the Roman government said that these tax collectors couldn't do was take more than that. So what would happen? Tax collector knock on your door. I'm here to collect taxes for the Roman government, and I'm here to collect 5%. That's how they made their money. The Roman government basically gave them permission that whatever you could skim off of the top, as long as we got our part, you can go ahead and get as much as you can possibly give without causing protest. It's kind of like organized crime. It was like the mafia. So a regular tax collector did that, but then you know what the chief tax collector did? In order for him to get his money, because he did not personally go door to door, Instead, he was at the top of the pyramid scheme, if you will. He had men under him that would trickle down to go all the houses. He would cause his tax collectors to give him some money off the top. And therefore, that would force the regular tax collectors to go out and ask for even more taxes so they could pay the chief tax collector. So here was a man, as the text says, was rich, and the reason why he was rich was because he made his money off the backs of his own fellow citizens, his fellow Jews, people of his nation, and he did it in a disingenuous, evil way. He was charging the people who worked for him to cause them to charge the people they were collecting from even more. Therefore, People hated tax collectors. They hated publicans. They hated these people who used them as a way of getting rich. In fact, in the religious circles, they thought that the publican was the worst kind of sinner. When they started listing all the different kind of sins a person could be engaged in, when they wanted to put a label on someone who was a sinner, what kind of sinner he was... When they ever saw the name publican, they thought that that was the worst possible person, the worst possible sinner a person could ever be. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, you, say, you see mention of people talking about publicans. Uh, for example, Luke chapter 5 and verse 30, they list it this way. They will say, publicans and other sinners. Publicans and other sinners. In other words... There was the main sin, and then every other sin fell behind it. A point that I want you to see here in this text is that this man was considered a sinner not only by the people around him, but he was also considered a sinner by God. He was the worst of sinners, if you will. But notice also in the text, in verse 1, that this man lived in Jericho. Now, I'll give you a little side information here. Jericho was the tax capital of Palestine. The reason being, it was a gateway city between different parts of the country. And there was a big merchant and commerce area there. And so it brought in all kinds of tax revenue for the Roman government. 
it brought in more taxes in that particular area and collected more taxes than perhaps any other city in Palestine. Now keep in mind when we say that, guess who was in charge of all that? If Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, he is the one then, of course, that was able to get the most wealth out of skimming off the top as he was engaged in this particular um, money-making scheme, if you will. So here was a man that was a sinner. But notice, not only he was a man that was a sinner, verse 3 points out the fact that he sought to see Jesus who he was. The text first points out that this man is a very wealthy man. If he was a publican living in this time, he was a man of means, a man who had all the things that he needed, a man who was very wealthy, he had many material possessions, but he also understood that there was something missing from his life. If we're honest with ourselves, if we think in the right kind of way, in a mature way, we understand and appreciate the fact that no matter how much money we have, no matter how many material things we have, that is not enough simply to make us happy. Those who are rich are always wanting something more. Those who have something are always wanting something more. And the reason being is that money and material things can't satisfy the need that's in our lives. Zacchaeus understood this and was searching for something else. But notice in the text, don't miss this point. He did not simply want to see Jesus out of curiosity. But notice as the King James puts it, he sought to see Jesus who he was. He wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to find out more about this Jesus. Well, the question might be asked, well, why did this happen? Why did Zacchaeus develop this interest? Well, if you turn back to the chapter previously... As Jesus is on his way to Jericho, there is a blind man who was sitting along the way uh, that was uh, begging of Jesus that um, he would heal him. And of course, the uh, text goes on in verse 42 of Luke chapter 18, And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight, thy faith hath saved thee. And verse 43 says, And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Now, basically, that verse, the healing of that blind man, kind of sets the stage for us for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus evidently heard about what had happened along the road to Jericho. Zacchaeus may have known this man who was blind, understood his plight, understood his problem. Maybe even Zacchaeus was responsible for the man who even taxed this blind man out of his money. But yet the news all around town was spreading. There is something different happening here. Here is a man that's able to give sight to God, I mean give sight to the blind, and they're giving glory to God over it. Zacchaeus not only wanted to see Jesus, he wanted to find out more about him. He was a searching sinner. But in getting to know Jesus, there's two problems here. Two problems that Zacchaeus had, or Zac. One's mentioned in the text, one is not mentioned in the text, but let's look at the one that's mentioned in the text first. 
It says, he sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the press because he was of, uh, he was little of stature. He was little of stature. Now basically that means that he was a short man. Now, we may think about our own stature today, and we may think that we're either short or tall, but let's make sure we appreciate the fact of the time that Zacchaeus was living in. I went and did some research to make sure I was correct on this, because I'd heard this before, but I wanted to make sure before I said something that it was correct. But do you know what the average height of a man living in Palestine during this time was? Five foot tall. That would mean that some of you here today who think that you're short in stature, you're actually taller than the tallest man uh, or the average tallness of the men that were living during the time of Jesus Christ. My point in this is if the average height was five feet tall during this time period, and by the way, the reason why we're taller today is because of better genetics, because of better food, perhaps maybe because of the steroids they put in the food. But the average height of a man back then was five feet tall. So to say that Zacchaeus was short... Zacchaeus was very short. And I can picture him in my mind as it says he could not for the press. Here's a man who's trying to see over the crowd and he's, he's getting up on his tiptoes. He's trying to jump up, but he can't see Jesus because he's just too short. There's some people in his way and he can't get to where he wants to get to. He wants to get to know Jesus. This man also had a second problem. It's not stated in the text. It's stated in our outline here. But Zacchaeus was a sinner. Zacchaeus, as far as the religious world was concerned, was the vilest of sinners. He was a traitor to his country. He took advantage of other people. The Old Testament speaks volumes and volumes about doing things the right kind of way, treating people the right kind of way, being just and not oppressing the poor. But here was a man who failed in all those areas. He was the worst of sinners, and because of that, he was now separated from God. text I mentioned last week, Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 2, where Isaiah speaking for God says, The Lord's hand is not so short that he cannot save, nor his ear dull of hearing that he cannot hear. But your sins and iniquities have caused you to be separated from God, and He has hid His face from you. Zacchaeus had one physical problem. He was short. But he had a far more severe problem, a spiritual problem, in that he was a sinner. But the text goes on in verse 4. It says, He ran and he climbed up a sycamore tree. Now, if you read that and think about it in the right kind of way, that's almost comical. Can you imagine me wanting to go see somebody and I just ran out of here as quick as I could and I climbed up a tree real quick? The idea of a grown man running out of here and climbing up a tree. Keep in mind that this was not just a man. This was a very wealthy man. This was a distinguished man. This was one of the richest men in town. This was an official for the Roman government. Picture in your mind, he's trying to get ahead of the crowd. And so he's running and he's trying to get to a, to ahead of the crowd. He's trying to get up so he can get to a point where he can get ahead of the crowd and climb up a tree and see Jesus. And then when he gets to a tree, he shimmies up that tree. And now he's sitting out on a branch. I think the lesson we can learn 
from this particular verse is that he was not going to let anything get in the way of him seeing Jesus. He was not going to let his physical problem being sure, and he was not going to let his spiritual problem being a sinner. He was not going to let any obstacle get in his way. He was going to find Jesus, and he was going to get to know him. I think the lesson, of course, for us is that we should never, ever let anything get in the way of our seeking Jesus and getting to know Him. Whether it be the things during the week or especially if it be the Lord's Day, we should look for opportunities to seek Jesus and get to know Him better. But here we have in the text, searching sinner, someone who wanted to get to know Jesus. But now look at verse 5. And here we see the seeking Savior. The verse simply goes like this. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Now folks, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, that raises all kinds of questions in my mind. First of all, of all the people there, why did he pick out Zacchaeus? The text leads us to believe that there were so many people there that Zacchaeus couldn't see around them, so there was a great mob of people there. Uh, Evidently, they were glorifying God because of what happened earlier. That's why the crowd was there, because Jesus had healed the blind man on the way into Jericho. So why of all the people there did he pick Zacchaeus? And here's the second question I have. How in the world did he know Zacchaeus' name? He's walking along into the town of Jericho, and there's all these people there, and he sees a man up in a tree, and he says, Well, that's not a squirrel, that's Zacchaeus. Calls him by name. And here's the third question that puzzles me. Why in the world was he insistent? That's the idea in the text. He was insistent that he goes and stays in his house. Well, I think the answer to all these questions are in verse 10 of our text. You see, Jesus was not just a man. He was the Savior. And not only was he the Savior, he was a seeking Savior. Because verse 10 says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Of all the people there, Jesus understood that here was a man that needed salvation. Here was a man that needed to be saved. In fact, as far as the religious world was concerned, this man was the worst sinner of all. If there was ever someone that Jesus needed to seek out, it was this man Zacchaeus. Now what's interesting, if you go back and do some research, this is the only time in the history of the gospel where Jesus ever insisted to go stay at somebody's house. He stayed at other people's house. He was invited to other people's house. But in this particular case, Jesus invited himself. He said, Zacchaeus, you need to come down from that tree. I am going to your house today and I'm going to stay with you. Jesus Christ says, this is something that needs to happen. I'm going to your house. 
Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 reminds us how that behold Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Jesus wants to come into your house and symbolically that means your heart. And as so many pictures have been painted of that particular verse, the doorknob is not on the outside of the door, the door is on the inside. In other words, it's up to you to let him into his house. My point is simply this. Jesus is a seeking Savior. He wants to save you in the same way that Zacchaeus was going to be saved. He says, I want to go to your house. But even Zacchaeus here had the opportunity to refuse him and say, well, I'm sorry, sir, that's just simply not going to happen. Jesus Christ, being the seeking Savior, wanted to go to his house. And so he looked up, as verse 5 says, and says, Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down for today. I must abide at thy house. But then the last point I want you to see this morning as the text continues with verse 6. There in the text we see the spectacular salvation that takes place. And you're going to understand why I call it spectacular in just a moment. But notice what it says. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he had gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham." For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now notice what's going on here. In verse 6, it says that he made haste. When he found out that Jesus wanted to come stay with him, he hurried down as fast as he could. He was eager, he was ready for Jesus to come to his house. And the text says also that, and received him joyfully, the Greek word there for joyfully is an overwhelming rejoicing. This man was just so excited. This man was just so happy. This man was just so full of joy that Jesus was coming to his house. Folks, we need to think of it in the same way when we start thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ has come into our life. When we think about what Jesus Christ has done for us, when we think about how He has saved us from our sins, and we think about the fact that it's a spectacular salvation, because it's just overwhelming when we think about it. The very fact that a man would die for us, the very fact that God would love us so much, the very fact that He can save us from our sins by His action, that's spectacular, that's wonderful. That is overwhelming joy that should take over us. And if we ever get that opportunity... just like Zacchaeus, we should not be slow about it. We should make haste. We should not put it off to another day. When that opportunity is there, we should grab a hold of that opportunity because it's spectacular salvation. It's unbelievable salvation. No wonder Zacchaeus was overwhelmed with joy. But notice what happens in verse 7. And when they saw it, They all murmured, saying that he had gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. When the crowd saw that 
Jesus was going to stay at this man's house, this man who was a publican, this man who was the chief of the publicans, this man who was a vile sinner of all the sinners a person could know, this is the worst sinner of all. Why in the world would Jesus have anything to do with him? Does he not know how awful he is? Much less talk to the man, but go to stay in his house? Be under the same roof? To eat the same food that this man eats? How in the world can Jesus do this? The word murmur here is the same word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the Israelites who were complaining against God and finding fault with God when they were in the desert because of the fact that they didn't think they were being treated correctly by God and they longed to return back to Egypt. And though it's not stated in the text, it may be that some of Jesus' own disciples were also murmuring murmuring at this time. The very fact that Jesus would want to have anything to do with, with such a vile sinner just doesn't make any sense to them. How in the world can anybody do that? But once again, folks, that's what makes salvation spectacular. Point of this particular verse and the, their reaction to it and what Jesus wanted to accomplish by this visit and why he picked Zacchaeus out of all the people there. He's basically saying, I'm coming into town and I'm going to find the worst sinner I can find and I'm going to prove to the entire world for forever that if I can save a man like Zacchaeus, I can save anybody. And if the rest of the religious world doesn't think it's fair, if the rest of the religious world doesn't think it's right, yes, you may think he's the worst sinner you've ever seen, you've ever come in contact with, but guess what? I'm Jesus Christ and my blood saves all. I can even save a man like, G- uh, like Zacchaeus. But notice the change that takes place in Zacchaeus' life. Verse 8 says, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Now notice, nowhere in the text, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, this is something you need to do. When Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, he told him, This is something you need to do. Your money is has taken over your life. You need to do something about your money. But nowhere in the text is that brought out. Jesus might have said something to him. The point is that Zacchaeus evidently wasn't doing this out of duty. He was doing this because his life was now changed. Because of the spectacular salvation he has experienced. Because of the love that Jesus Christ has shown him. Because Jesus Christ singled him out among all the people there and wanted to come stay at his house. There was a change that now took place in his life. And he realized that for many years, as being the chief publican, he was stealing money from his own countryman. And he was going to make sure that he had everything back to the way that it was and more so. He wasn't just content to give back a little bit. He wasn't just content to give back so he would break even. He wanted to give back to those people he stole from and give back more than they even deserved to get back. Such was the change in his life. It wasn't done out of duty, but it was done out of a great compulsion of love. It reminds you of the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 beginning at verse 14. Where the Apostle Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us. 
For we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And those of us who were dead, who now henceforth live, we shall not live unto ourselves, but live unto Him who loved us and gave His life for us and rose again. What Zacchaeus is doing here and what Paul is saying here is what makes Christianity Christianity is a compulsion to love Jesus Christ back. Too many times in Christianity, we think Christianity being a duty list, a checkoff list, a punch card where I've got this done for today, I've got this done for today, I don't need to worry about it anymore. I came to church, I got that covered. But Christianity is about love, it's about compassion and compulsion for Jesus Christ. That's the thing that drives us. And that's what's going on here with Zacchaeus. That's what makes it a spectacular salvation Salvation in Jesus Christ changes the man and gives him a different driving force in his life. But verse 9 simply says this, And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much he also is the son of Abraham. Now notice what has happened in this verse. Zacchaeus went from being a terrible sinner to a true son of Abraham. Now, let's play on words here. First of all, Jesus is saying, you're really not a traitor to your country. You're a Jew just like any other Jew. You're a son of Abraham. But there's also the greater point that he's making. He's a son of Abraham in the fact that he is now going to receive the inheritance that is due a son of Abraham. The Jews, of course, expected the Messiah was going to come and restore and make everything right. They were mistaken how that was going to happen. They thought of it in an earthly sense, but Jesus was coming in a spiritual sense. And so he is telling us, as he told Zacchaeus, because we are now all children of Abraham through Jesus Christ and our obedience to his commands, that you too are the one of the ones that are going to be saved. He says, this day is salvation come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Now, how in the world can that be? How in the world can Jesus say this to this man, Zacchaeus? This terrible person, this terrible IRS agent, this terrible sinner. Well, once again, really the whole point of the entire story, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come, to seek and to save that which was lost. As we close this lesson today, one thing I I find to be helpful in this story, as far as I'm concerned, and of course as far as you are concerned, it would be helpful to us if we went through this story and changed the name of the town to, in verse 1, to whatever town you live in, and changed the name of the person in the story to whatever your name is, Change your job or whatever your situation is in life to uh, that instead of being a publican. And then in verse 3, whatever your particular limitation may be in life that you feel that you have. And then start reading the story again. And put yourself in the story. And appreciate the fact that regardless of who you are, regardless of where you live, regardless of whatever your limitation may be, regardless of whatever your sin may be, let your eyes move down to one of the most beautiful verses that we have in the entire Bible. 
Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're lost. If something doesn't change, you're going to spend eternity in hell with Satan and his angels. But regardless of what that sin may be, even if you're a publican or a republican or a democrat, or if you're the worst sinner that ever on the face of the earth ever existed, whether it may be that you were an adulterer, a murderer, a cannibal, a person who was a terrorist, whatever your sin may be, the whole point of this story we find in Luke chapter 19 is that regardless of what your sin may be, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't have to remain lost. You just need to simply obey the commandments we find in God's Word, and we'll be glad to sit down and talk to you more about this. But predicated upon your faith, uh, there is repentance and confession and the willingness to be baptized for the remission of your sins. But if you're here today and you're a Christian, but down through the years you've got yourself into a predicament where your sins have become so heavy that perhaps you've even given up on trying to be saved. Remember this guy, Zach, the IRS agent? The whole point of the story is if someone like him can be saved, then certainly someone like me can be saved and someone like you can be saved. We just simply need to let God know that we've decided to make a change. We've confessed our sins, and as 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 reminds us, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I've taken a lot of your time this morning, but I hope we've made the point that needs to be made to each and every one of us, and we hope that you'll come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.